So in my devotions this week, I was, um, for part, one, one of the days I was in the book of Numbers, and I was reading the, the segment of scripture on the man Balaam. And um, he's kind of a mysterious character in the Bible. We read about him in the New Testament only in the negative. He uh, was a reprobate. He, he is lost. Uh, he was a false prophet. Nevertheless, he was a prophet. He was one that heard from God and God spoke through him. And that's why he's mysterious, because it's very difficult to figure out um, the dynamics of his life and ministry. He was not an Israelite. He was um, from from Midian, from a totally foreign area. But yet somehow this man um, heard from God. And um, in his story, he was hired by the king of Moab to curse the children of Israel. And um, when he prayed about whether or not he could go uh, and serve the king of Moab, God said no. But then the, the king of Moab returned with a greater offer the second time, and Balaam really wanted the money. And so he prayed about it the second time. He said, God, can, can I go? He said the second time, and God um, said go. But it was a test to see if, if, if Balaam would obey what he already knew to be the revealed will of God. And so he said, oh, yes, God said yes. And so he went. And it says uh, in Numbers, it says that, that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Mo, Bo, Balaam because he did this thing. It says God's anger was kindled because he went. And it says that the angel of the Lord stood in the way as an adversary against him. And so God said go, but it was a test. And then uh, God's anger was kindled. Now, because the angel of the Lord was standing in the way, uh, the story goes that as Balaam was riding on his donkey, the donkey saw the angel, but Balaam didn't. And so the donkey first turned aside into a field. Balaam began to... Uh, beat the donkey and yell at the donkey uh, for being rebellious and stubborn and not going where he directed. And so the donkey corrected his course. And uh, in a vineyard, he was passing between these two walls where um, there was rocks on the right and on the left, and the passage was becoming more narrow. And it says the, that the angel of the Lord was standing in, in the middle, and the donkey could see him. And so the donkey tried to turn to the side, but he crashed into the wall, and he crushed Balaam's leg. And Balaam became so angry that, again, he began to just incessantly beat his donkey and scream at it. And the Bible tells us that God opened the mouth of the donkey, and the donkey began to speak to Balaam. And he said, why are you beating me? He said, have I not always been a faithful donkey to you? <laughs> you know? And the thing that struck me and why I'm beginning this way this morning is because Balaam's response to the donkey, and listen, if the donkey talks to you, that's one thing. <laughs> but if you start talking back to the donkey, <laughs> you know you're not in the right way with God. You know you're at, something needs to change on the inside, you know. And so Balaam began to yell at the donkey, and he said, beat you. He said, if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you. <clears throat> And then it says that the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and Balaam saw the Lord standing in the passage. And here's the thing that struck me. I've never seen this before. I'll read it to you. It says that um, it's, it's Numbers 22, uh, verse 31. It says, Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed down his head and he fell flat on his face. And the thing that struck me is that in this passage, you have two angry people and you have two swords. 
You have Balaam, who wished he had a sword and said that if he did, he would kill the donkey. And then you have God, who's angry at a rebellious prophet who did have a sword, and yet he did not use it on Balaam. And that was the thing that struck me, is that here's this incessant rebellious prophet, and in his wrath, he was ready to slay. And then you have a gracious, firm God who was angry, who had a sword, but yet he showed mercy. And Balaam turned out to be the train wreck that the Bible describes, and he he went on to do a great injustice to the people of God for his own personal gain. But yet God was merciful to him. And as we come to Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul begins by saying in verse 1, He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. Now, if you wanted to talk about God's mercy, the mercy that he showed Balaam or the mercy that he declares himself to be throughout the the Bible, and the mercy that he's shown to us, the mercy that's demonstrated in the person of Christ. If you want to take just that word mercy and you wanted to expand upon it and you wanted to describe it and understand it, then what you would have is everything that's been written in Romans chapters 1 through 11. That's, what, that's how the Apostle Paul encapsulates the last 11 chapters with that one phrase, the mercies of God. He says, I beseech you by the mercies of God. In other words, the therefore that we read of right there at the beginning when he says, I beseech you therefore, he's connecting everything he said to what he's now about to say. And he describes all of that in that one word, mercies. This grace that has caused us to be forgiven of our sins, this grace that drove God to give us his son, to spare not his own son, but to freely deliver him up for us all. This God who so loved us that while we were yet his enemies, he gave his son to bleed out and die for us. This God who has called us now to receive grace and forgiveness and now has given us his Holy Spirit so that we can be in communion with him and that we can be transformed on the inside. This is mercy. And mercy is not getting what you deserve. What did Balaam deserve? And what did we deserve? The cross, the sword, right? And yet the mercy of God is that we didn't get what we deserved. God was merciful to us and he put upon his son the thing that was really headed for us, the thing that we had purchased. And so Paul begins this chapter with the word beseech. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Now, the word beseech, as you see it there, it it means to beg, it means to implore, to admonish, or to encourage. And I I think that the the significance of the word there is that um, what's being asked in this is is not forced. In other words, he's not demanding, he's he's not saying, I demand that by the mercies of God that you do this, or that I require it, or that this is what God requires of you, but rather it's an imploring. And what Paul is doing is as our elder brother, he's graciously coming alongside of us, and he's saying to us, listen, 
I, I've been walking with this God for a long time. I understand a thing or two about his person and his ways. And I would greatly encourage you to do what I'm about to say. And we understand that as, our, as parents, right? Sometimes when we think something is extremely important for our kids to do, we'll just put our arm around. I greatly encourage that you would go clean your room right now. <laughs> the best thing that you can be doing right now is to just walk up the stairs. <laughs> now, it isn't with that mindset of, you know, sarcastic rebuke but rather just as a, as a gracious plea and as a representation of God. God does not require us to do what's being asked. He says, I beseech you. I'm imploring you. I'm encouraging you. I'm admonishing you. And, and, and here's the bargaining chip. He's saying, and, and here's what it's based on. What I'm going to ask you to do is based upon, then he says, the mercies of God. The object of this reason that I'm, of this thing I'm asking you to do, is the mercies of God. In other words, what I'm asking you to do right now is I'm not holding up something that, that you can have if you do what I'm about to ask you to do. This is not a price that you're going to pay in order to obtain something. Like, okay, here's the mercies of God, and if you do what I ask you, you can have them. That's not what he's saying. We already have them. And what he's saying is that because the mercies of God have already been extended to you, it's already been put in your hand, it's yours, that because of that, here's the reasonable thing that you ought to do, and here's what it is. He tells us, by the mercies of God, I beseech you that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice unto God that you would present your bodies. So here's what God has done for you. And based upon all of the mercy that God has provided in what he's done for you, what's reasonable for you to do is for you to present your body now to him. You say, present my body to God? What does God want with my body? What value is there in that for God, that he would want my body. Well, first of all, three things. First of all, quite practically, the reason why God is interested in me presenting my body to him is because that's first what he did for me. That's what God did in the person of Christ on the cross, is that he laid down his body and his life for us. Now, why did he do that? Anybody want to answer in a word? That's it. Very good. Praise the Lord. He did it for love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, out of, as a gesture of just pure, unconditional, agape love, God presented his body to you and I so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And that's the most amazing thing. Because in order for the motivation for God to lay down his life for us, if that motivation is love, then it has to be unconditional. Because everything else is conditional, right? It's a, it's a price for a prize. But love is unconditional, meaning that God did it just to demonstrate his love. He didn't want anything in return. He wasn't trying to buy something that he would get from us. It wasn't that in order in some way to motivate us to serve him. He wasn't looking and saying, well, if I get them, then I get this. And so I'm going to 
purchased them with this. That had nothing to do with it at all. God had a desire to have a, a meaningful relationship with a being that could freely, willingly give him love in return. That's what God's will was. He wasn't looking for morality. He has an entire host of angelic realms. He could create with perfect morality and without the ability to, to sin against him. It wasn't morality that he was looking for. It isn't service that he's looking for because that same host of angels that can be perfectly moral can also serve way more effectively than you and I. There is nothing that God wants from us that he can't get in a better way a thousand other ways. But what God wants, what God wanted when he made man is he wanted a relationship based on love. And so as the initiator, God presented his body to you and I as a gesture of inviting us into a relationship with himself. And now what Paul is saying is based upon what God has initiated in presenting his body to you and I, our reasonable response to that is to now present our body back to him as a living sacrifice. Again, not motivated by anything that we'll get from God or that he'll do for us, but as a gesture of responsive love. He loved us and gave his body for us And thus, it's reasonable for us to now come to him and say, Lord, you made me, you saved me, you've redeemed me, you've given me eternal life, and my reasonable response to what you've done for me is to now present my body to you, Lord, my life is yours. And from this moment forward, I pledge that my body, my physical being and entity will be mine second and yours first. I present it to you. You say, well, what use does God have for it once I give it to him? You say, well, I don't really need that. I got a better one. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you, you say, well, what in the world is God's use for my body? What would he do with it once he receives it if I give it back to him? Interestingly, if you think about the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we see in the Bible, we see the Father, and he's always seated upon his throne. And the Bible says that no one has seen God at any time in the context of seeing the Father. No man can see the Father and live, the Bible tells us. Jesus said that. We see that Jesus also has a body. He was given a body. He said himself that a body you have prepared for me. His body was crucified, and he is in heaven today bearing the marks of that crucified body. When John sees Jesus... In glory, he sees him as a lamb that had been slain. He carried the wounds that, and the scars that he received on earth with him into heaven, and they are there now. So we see that the Father has a body, the Son has a body, but there's a third person of the Trinity that has no body. The Holy Spirit, the omnipresent person of the triune God that has no body. You say, well, what body then does he desire to have? Ours. That's right. And when we yield our bodies and we give them to God and we say, God, my body is yours, I offer it to you, God the Holy Spirit, who stood previously on the outside asking if he could come in, he now comes in and he inhabits our mortal body and we come into a communion and a fellowship with God where the two are made one. And thus the Holy Spirit of God bids us to present our bodies to him that he might come in and that he might take up residency inside of us. And he wants to be chiefly in control of our lives as we walk with him. That was the purpose for which we've been made. 
That's the reason why we were created, is to be in loving communion and fellowship with God, wherein he would indwell us. That's what he wants. And that's why we're to present our bodies to him. How? It says, as a living sacrifice. So we're to present our bodies, it says, as a living sacrifice. The word living sacrifice means a living slaughtered one. It's kind of an oxymoron, isn't it? A living slaughtered one. That's what the word literally means. Remember when Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. That's right. Jesus said, unless a man lose his life for my sake, he will lose it entirely. But if a man does lose his life for my sake, then he will find it. In other words, there's an anomaly or an oxymoron in it is that when we die, it's then that we live. So to be a living sacrifice means that I'm taking my life or the part of me that is me and I'm willingly laying it down on the cross and letting it die so that the life of Christ may now live in me. Galatians chapter 2 verse 21 says, I am crucified with Christ. This is Paul writing. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the life that we have now is no longer our own. We have livingly crucified it. We have laid ourselves down and we've allowed him to have first place in us, wherein the life that we now live is a life that's controlled by and governed by the Holy Spirit and no longer by the self. And that's the life that we've been called into. It's a living sacrifice. It's his body first and mine only second. And so I asked myself the question this morning as I consider this and for us to consider is where would you be this morning if Jesus Christ had not come into your life and saved you? Twice this week, I I counseled with people who found themselves at, at a junction in life that I was at when I was at the age of 19. First saved, I had just given my life to Christ. And there were sins and struggles and things that I was fighting through in those early days of my Christian experience. And, and there was a battle going on in me, the same that goes on in, in everyone else. Is that, Am I going to let God crucify these sins and these things? Or, or am I going to continue in them and try to hold on to you know, my profession of faith while I walk in, in paths of, of darkness? And... You know, thank God he brought me through those things and and crucified those things. And I've been able to walk for the past 20 years with him. You know, and of course, that doesn't mean perfection. You guys understand, you know, it's constantly a fight and a struggle. And, you know, we're battling new things and all. But twice over the past week, I've been able to communicate with younger men what my life would look like today if I had chosen to stay on the path of darkness at the age of 19. And it was a grim picture because I can see it. I I can clearly see what I was becoming and the things that had been sown in my heart and the lifestyle that was beginning to form. And knowing now, you know, how life works, when you get in, when you, you know, walk in a certain path of sin, you can't control how far it goes. It controls you and it takes you where it goes. And if for the past 20 years I had continued in the things that that I had been in when I was that age, I know for a fact that by now I would be addicted to several substances. 
I probably would be in and out of the cycle, 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 whatever that place is, you know, St. Francis. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the cycle, thank you. (laughs) In and out of the psych ward a a few times. I probably would have been married and divorced a few times just based upon my personality, you know. And there would be a whole host of problems. I know for a fact that, and and I probably might really be dead, suicide, (laughs) or, you know, overdose or something else. And I think about where I am instead of that. And what God has done in my life. And the grace, you know, not a rich man, but I'm a rich man. And I think about where I would be if it wasn't for Jesus Christ and what he's done in my life. And as we think about that, as you think in your own life where you would be right now without Christ. And he bids for us to surrender our bodies to him that he might have first place in our life. For us to say no. For us to say, nah, I could do better. It's unreasonable. It's not reasonable. Because what he does in a life is infinitely greater than what we could ever do for our lives ourselves. And so we're called to be a living sacrifice, a living slaughtered one for him. Now, interestingly, he describes the living sacrifice by calling it, first of all, holy. He says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, first of all, holy. Now, this is the most remarkable thing. Is that, do you know why he can call our bodies a living sacrifice as holy? Because he's made them holy. It isn't holy because we have made a a vow of holiness or because we have worked hard to create holiness in our lives, but he has made us holy. When the priests in the Old Testament would come to do the divine service of God, They would go through rites of consecration whereby they would be sanctified for the duties that they were called to do. And thus they would be made holy by ceremonial washings and uh, rituals and various things that they had to go through. And it wasn't until those rituals were performed that they were considered and qualified as holy to go into the priest's place and do the duties that they were called to do. But it was something that was done to them. It was put upon them by the ceremony. Now, for you and I to present our bodies to God, I mean, think about what we're bringing to him. Think about what's in us. Think about what we are. We're saying, here, God, have my body. And you're like, is that a dead raccoon? Like, what are, what is, what are you presenting to me? But yet he looks at it and he calls it holy. He says, oh, this is a holy thing. This is prepared. This is ready. This can be indwelt by the Spirit of God. And the reason it can be called holy is not because of anything that we have produced, are done in and of ourselves, it's because of what he has done through the blood of Christ and the application of that blood in order to purify it and cleanse it through Jesus Christ. So the cross of Christ makes it so that when I present my body to God, it is, he says, holy, second of all, acceptable. Do you see that word right there? I bring, it, I bring my body to God and I say, God, you know, I want to be filled with you. I want to commune with you. I want to know you in the way that you've provided. New Testament. The Spirit of Christ living in me. But God, I'm so unclean. I could never do it. Maybe if I was Billy Graham or maybe if I could get to a certain point, I could be anointed or I could know the presence of God or I could hear your voice or feel your, 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 your nearness. But Lord, I'm not acceptable. No, no, no. You are acceptable. Not because, again, of you, but because of Jesus Christ. God, in his mercy, his mercies, plural, has made us accepted in the beloved, Ephesians chapter 1. 
He says, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, on the other side of that, the fact that we've been made holy and that we've been accepted because of Christ, we do have a part to play in making that environment as conducive to his presence as we are able to. In other words, we're called unto a life of holiness, right? I mean, if the Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside of us, then you can assume that he wants a holy environment to live in, right? And so we're not to willingly walk in paths of darkness and give ourselves to sinful things and think, well, okay, well, I'm just cleaned by the blood of Christ. No, no, no. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And we're not to grieve the Holy Spirit with willful sin, saying, well, Jesus will just forgive it. It grieves the Spirit of God. And so we're to be holy. And he says that this is your reasonable service. And that's part of our yielding our bodies to him, is that we don't yield our bodies to sinful things on the other side uh, 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 of it. Now, he says there in, at the end of verse 1 that it is our reasonable service to do this, to give our bodies to God. The word service that he uses there is the Greek word uh, latrion or latrio, you know, whatever. I'm not a Greek scholar, you know. But the reason I point that out to you is because usually in the New Testament, the word service is the word doulos, which is like the bond slave. Paul, when he says Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, he uses the word doulos, and it's the one who has their ear pierced, the one who is a willing servant of God. That's, that's the typical word for service in the New Testament, is that I, I, God, I'm coming to you, and I am your bond servant. I'm your slave. I want to serve you. But that's not the word that he uses here. The word uh, latrion literally means worship. It's a divine act of service in, in the context of worshiping God. And so he says that this is your reasonable worship. In other words, the way that we worship God properly in the New Testament context is by presenting our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, they would bring their lamb, their offering to the temple, or they would bring their temple shekels or whatever the offering constituted that they were seeking to fulfill. But there was some offering, and that was considered their worship. I'm going to the temple to worship, and they would give. In the New Testament context, we don't bring a lamb. We don't bring our money. We don't bring our talents. What we bring to God is our life. Remember when Jesus was being tested by the Pharisees? And they came to him and they, they were seeking to, to, to trap him. And they said, should we pay taxes? Should we, you know, give to Caesar? And they thought they had him. Because if he says no, you know, then, then, then he would be rightly representing the Jews. But he would be condemned by Rome because he's, you know, he's rebelling against the taxes. If he says yes, he would be servant to Rome, but he would be a rebel to the Jews. And they thought, well, this is perfect. We can get him killed one way or the other here. And it says that he perceived their craftiness. He knew what they were up to. And instead of saying yes or no, he said, show me a coin. And so they show him the coin. And he said, whose image is on this coin? And they said, Caesar's image. And so he said, well, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but give to God the things that are God's. What's the implication? The implication is, whose image are you made in? You're made in the image of God. Therefore, give your life to God. Amen. And so our worship is not in giving something to him that comes from us, but it's in presenting our very selves and our very lives to him. That's what it means to worship. 
We just studied Genesis 22. The first time the word worship appears in the Bible is when Abraham offered his son Isaac to God as a, as a living sacrifice, literally. He said, Abraham did to his wife, he said that me, or he said to the young men, he said, me and the lad are going to go yonder and worship and we'll return unto you again. And based on the context of that passage and the context of, of, of what worship is in the Bible, the definition of worship, what it means to worship God, is the sacrificial giving up of something we love out of devotional obedience and loving trust in God. Now, I don't think that there is anything on the planet that any one of us loves more than ourself. Right? I mean, we are by nature intrinsically selfish beings, humans. We are constantly thinking about ourselves. What am I going to eat? What do I want to do? What am I going to do later on? I mean, we are just entrenched with it. It's a plague. We hate it, but we love it. It's like this thing, you know? And what God is asking of us here, he's saying it's your reasonable service that you take the thing that you love the most, which is self, and that you bring that to God. And you lay it down as a living sacrifice and you say, because of what you've done for me and showing your love through your son, I now bring to you the thing that is most dear to me. And I willingly allow you to crucify this old self and that you would have the preeminence and that you would reign in me. And what Paul is saying to us here is that that is worship. That's what it means to worship God, to bring to him the thing that we love the most out of devotional obedience, because this is what's right, and most importantly, out of loving trust. Lord, you demonstrated that you're worthy of all of me in the giving to me of yourself and of your son. And in that, Lord, I trust you that if I give my life completely to you, that it's a better thing even for me than if I were to keep it for myself. And that's worship. And Paul says that this is your reasonable service. Now, you'll notice that the, the second verse, verse 2, and we're not going to go any further than verse 2 this morning, so don't get nervous about the time. You'll notice that the first word in the second verse is the word and. You see that there? Which means that's not all. <laughs> there's, there's, just, there's just a little bit more. Not only are we to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, so that he is first and that we are second. But second of all, he says, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do you see that word mind right there? The second thing that we're to present to God, aside from our body, the physical part of what we are, is our mind. Now, the mind is the soul. It's the emotions, it's the part that thinks, the part that reasons, the part that feels. It's the source of emotion and pathos and, you know, all of those kind of things. What drives us, our personality, all of those things encapsulate the soul, or in the Bible, the mind. And what he's saying here is that not only are we to present our bodies physically to God, that the spirit might inhabit them, but we're to yield also our mind, our very personality our makeup, our emotions, everything that we are, and we're to give that to God as well. You say, well, how do you do that? How do you give your mind to God? Well, he tells us. 
He says there's a negative and a positive. The negative is, number one, is that we're not to be conformed to this world. The word conform is the Greek word, I'm going to kill this one, <laughs> but you'll understand why, you know, why I tell you what it is, but it's the word sukamatsio. And what it literally means, it's the English word schematics. You guys know what schematics are. It's like a blueprint, right? And what he's saying is that our mind is not to be shaped by the schematics of the world. So what are the schematics of the world? The, the trends, the values, the identities, the morals, the standards, and the ways of the world. We're not to be conformed to those things. So in other words, we're not to watch the trends of what's going on in the world and then fashion and conform the way we think, act, and live according to the trends in the world. We're not to establish our value systems based upon what's right and proper in the world. Isn't it amazing how quickly values and morals change in society? I mean, I see a lot of gray hair in here. I've got a few myself now. Just a few. But you guys that are older, you know what life was like back in the 19... 60s, 1950s, right? I mean, think about the difference in the world between those days and now. What was acceptable then and what's acceptable now? What if you were to take, just, just pick a, a station on, on the radio, just any station that you would find hitting your seek button in your car, just pick one, anyone randomly, and play five minutes of that station in 1955. <laughs> And what would happen? Pick a TV show. Just throw a dart at the, the, you know, on the newspaper. I don't know if they still do this, but they used to, on the newspaper, tell you what was on TV that day. You know, the whole, every station, every time. Just throw a dart at that. And whatever the dart hits, play 10 minutes of that program in 1955. And what are people, you know. Transport the clothing department of J.C. Penney or Sears and bring it back to the, the J.C. Penney and Sears of when it first opened up in its first days and then have people walk through or look at the ads or the catalogs. Like, Don't you, son, look at that. <laughs> you, know, you can't see. You look at the values and the morals and the trends of the world and you realize that there's no standard and that it always progresses towards iniquity. It always goes downward. And if you and I look at the world as the, the system whereby we judge our, or, or establish our values and our morals and follow trends, then there's no way that we're going to hit the standard of God. He says that we're not to be according to the schismatics of the world, schematics of the world, to find our identity or, or establish our standards or follow the ways of the world. He says you're not going to find it there. And so the, the first way in which we surrender our mind to God, to lay down our mind and say, God, I want you to have it, is that we decide, I'm not going to let the world define who I am or what I am or what's right and wrong or what's beautiful and what's art or what anything else. I'm not going to let the world do that. I'm not going to be conformed to this world. But rather, and I love this, it's one of the greatest words in the Bible. He says, but rather be, and here's the positive, transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know what the word transformed is? The word transformed is metamorpho. Guess what word comes from that in the English? Metamorphosis. 
And what it literally means is to change into another form, to transform. And that's huge because it is not reform. To reform something is to take the existing substance and to modify it so that it resembles something different. That's not what he's talking about here. He's saying that we're going to change this from one thing into something altogether different from what it originally was. And that gives me hope. Because what it means is that when I allow the Spirit of God to have precedence in first place in my life, He doesn't just take what I am and modify it to make it somewhat acceptable. He transforms it and changes it completely and makes it something that it's not. And that makes all the difference. Because it means in the power of the Spirit, I have power to change. That means I'm not an alcoholic for life. That means I'm not a, 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 a pathological liar that has amended his ways. I'm not a kleptomaniac. The world no longer defines me in those things. Well, this is what you'll always be, but if you follow this way of thinking, then, then you don't have to follow through with the behavior, even though that's what you are. No, no, no. That's blasphemous. Because what the Bible says is that if I give him first place in my life, he doesn't just change me around, he transforms me. He makes me new on the inside. That's hope. Because I don't want to be what I, what I am by nature. I don't want to be what I would be if I walked away from Christ or didn't ever follow Christ. I don't want any semblance of that to exist in me. I want to be changed. And what the Bible is telling me here is that I can be changed how? He says, by the renewing of my mind. The word renewal means complete renovation. That there can be a complete renovation. Now, when you renovate something, what's the first thing you do? That's it. You gut it. You gut it. You take it out. Sometimes people say, why am I going through this? I gave my life to Christ and now everything is... Yes, you're being gutted. <laughs> the carpet is being rolled up with the padding. Even the tax strips being taken out, the mold is being bleached off the walls. That's what you're feeling right now, that sting in your life. You're being renovated. You're being gutted. You always gut before you rebuild. By the renewal, and then he says, but it's the renewal of the mind. In other words, the mental faculties or the soul. Now, this is huge also. Psalm chapter 23. We all know the 23rd Psalm, the shepherd song, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you know one of the most powerful lines in that psalm is? It says that he restores my soul. The soul is the psyche. It's the mental. It's the part that thinks, feels, and reasons. He restores the soul. He renews the mind. Now, there's a lot of people that go to psychologists, right? Or psychiatrists. What are they? They're mind doctors. They're soul doctors, there's a lot of people that take psychotropic medications, medications that are designed to rewire the soul. There's only one thing that can really rewire the soul, and that's the God who renews the mind, the God who restores the soul, and he has power to do it. And he tells us that the way to do it is not through contemplation, not through medication, not through medical means, but rather it's by presenting our soul to him and saying, you take first place in my life. And thus, he's able then to renew the mind. The mental faculties belong him. 
So when we surrender our bodies and we surrender our minds, we're giving the spirit control of our mind and our body. Now, remember back in chapter 8, we talked about that? The carnal mind, the mind that's controlled by the flesh, and the spiritual mind, the mind that's controlled by the spirit. And what Paul is saying is that our reasonable response to the mercies of God is that we're to present our bodies and we're to present our minds. And then when we do that, he uses our bodies and he renews our minds. That's what he does. And so we're giving him control. Now, in order for our mind to be renewed by the spirit of God who's in us, we have a part to play. Do you know what it is? Is we provide the raw materials. Notice what he says as he finishes out his thought, Paul, here. He says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You see that word you? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let me tell you how the mind is renewed. The way it's renewed is that we provide for God in this renovation process, we provide the raw materials. Now, what's the raw materials in which, with which our mind is going to be renewed? I can tell you this, that the moment you get saved, the moment you pray, God, I give you my mind. He doesn't go, okay, good. That's what I've been waiting for. Good prayer. Flip a switch. Everything's changed. Wow. This is great. If you've had that experience, I wish I was you. How is the mind renewed? It's a process, isn't it? And you know where the material comes from? Thank you, Chris. You guys are good with your answers today. If you're going to prove and walk in what is the acceptable and perfect will of God, you better know what it is. And where do you find that out? In the Word of God. And so as we give ourselves to the Word of God, the Spirit of God, who now has control of the mind and the faculties of the mind, takes the word and works it into the wiring of what we are, removes the old, and changes us into what's new. And we become a pattern of Jesus Christ according to the word of God. We provide the raw materials for change by committing ourselves to knowing God's word, proving what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. One of my little side hobbies, you know, that's kind of like just grown on me over the years is uh, health, fitness. You know, you guys know that. I've shared it with you before, you know, all these things. And, um, you know, Georgia and I don't have, literally don't have time to watch a movie. You know, like it's very rare that we'll get to do that. We don't even have time to watch a sitcom, you know. But what we do sometimes get time to do is just go on YouTube and, and we'll watch like a, a five or ten minute thing on health or um, nutrition or, you know, something in, in that thing just to learn something, you know, along the way. And one of the things that, uh, that, that we've been kind of like thinking through and watching and learning lately concerning our bodies and health is that, you know, when, when you take like, um, let's say you take supplements or vitamins in order to um, restore something that's lacking or to, to build up an area that's weak in your body, you know, what you're doing essentially is that you're giving your body the raw materials necessary in order for your body to replenish or rebuild the things that need to be uh, healed or fixed in, in yourself. But that vitamin or that supplement that you take, all that is is the raw materials, it's like two-by-fours and nails and things like that. It's up to your body's system. That's the factory 
that then uses those materials to do what it's supposed to do. And so here's what that means. It means that those supplements, vitamins, minerals, whatever it is, even just food, are only as good as the factory's ability to use it to do what it's supposed to do within your body. And so as we age, right, we take these things and we think the fountain of youth, you know, I've got it, vitamin D3, that's it. And, and you know, we take these things and we're like, why the heck is my hair still falling out? <laughs> you know, and I'm doing everything right, you know. The reason is because the factory is breaking down. <laughs> the issue isn't that the raw materials aren't there. No, no, there's too many raw materials. Your body's putting them in places. It doesn't know what to do with them. I got too many two-by-fours here. I can't build anymore. I'm not 18, you know, kind of a thing. The factory breaks down. But the point is that there's raw materials, but then there's the factory, and you need both working in tandem. And when we present our minds to God, what we have done is we've turned the lights on in the factory. God, the Holy Spirit, is now in us, and the, the capability for our mind to be renewed and for us to be changed is fully functional. But now we produce the raw materials. We put in the Word of God. Genesis to Revelation, line upon line, continually, every day of our life, we make it our focus, our meditation, we make it our ideal, our standard, we make it our daily bread, our food. We put the Word in. And the capabilities of the factory to do what it's supposed to do in us is limitless. And thus, the more we give the Spirit of God to work with, the faster and the more complete the transformation is. We give him the materials in order that he might do his work renewing our mind, transforming us. And in the process, we prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I like that word, prove. The word prove means to test. Sometimes people ask the question and they say, how do I know if I'm hearing God's voice? You know, how do I know? Sometimes, you know, a thought will come in or I'll see, think something or something come up and I think, well, that might be the Lord, but how do you know? Here's how you know. Prove it. Test it out. You know, try it. Act on it. See what happens. You'll find out soon enough if it was God <laughs> or if it was just your mind or too much coffee or... <laughs> <laughs> caffeine visions you know like kind of a thing you know god wants me to build a stadium for him you know, so, you know by 3 p.m you're like ah that wasn't the lord you know <laughs> but prove it walk with him see if you don't ever if you don't ever step out you're never going to discern whether or not god is leading or if god is speaking and thus we prove what is what? The good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, some have, have tried to make this um, uh, like successive or, or in stages. Well, there's the good will of God. You know, there's the acceptable will of God. And then there's the perfect will of God. You know, so work your way up. You know, first you'll, okay, that's acceptable, son. Good job. That's good. Good, that attaboy. Oh, perfect. Yeah, we'll get there. I don't think so. I think he's just being redundant. The good and acceptable and perfect, all three, will of God. How does it happen? We present our bodies as a living sacrifice. It's reasonable. It's what he did for us. We enter into loving relationship with him. We respond likewise according to what he has done for us. 
we yield also our mind and we say, God, I, don't, I no longer want to be first. I want you to be first in both my body and my mind, my soul. You control everything that I am. We demonstrate it by giving him the raw materials to work with in order that the transformation might be expedient and complete. And along the way, we don't hijack it by putting in a bunch of stuff that's going to weaken and ruin the structure. It doesn't make sense. And then we walk with him, proving out what is his will in a generic sense and in a specific sense, according to his plan for our lives. And he says, this is your reasonable worship based upon the mercies of God. That's what he's done for us. He gets more practical as we go on. Next week we'll look at, we'll take the next maybe six verses or so, or not next week, sorry, two weeks from now. And, uh, and, and it gets real good as he begins to now, you know, we have the next question, right? The next question is, well, where's my place? What does he want to do with me? Why am I on earth? And he's going to begin to unfold that in the specifics of how it relates to us as individuals uh, in, in the verses that follow. So hang with as we um, continue, but what an amazing passage, amazing passage, you know.